Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Welcome to the Mother's Day episode, or at least the week after Mother's Day episode of the Untoxicated Podcast. Now, Mother's Day episode, you probably think we are going to predominantly feature the voice of a mother on the podcast. It's Sherry's turn. We're going to talk a lot about her and hear a lot from her. I would love that, but sadly, that's not the case because she's not here. She is off picking up our daughter at college, which I know she is just beside herself with excitement for. And the reason I'm recording this podcast episode solo is because the only way we could have gotten it done in time to publish on the Monday after Mother's Day, had we decided to do it together like normal, would have been to record on Mother's Day, and that just seems cruel. As much as we both love the podcast, we also have learned to really appreciate downtime and appreciate time off. And so recording a podcast episode on the day dedicated to my wife and the mother of our four children, that didn't seem to make any sense. Now, I know what you're going to be most missing, uh, our Untoxicated Podcast listeners. You're going to miss her laugh because so many of you have told me how much uh, joy it brings to your heart to hear Sherry laugh, especially after all that she's been through. And I, I couldn't agree more. You, I know that so many of our listeners resonate with her tears. Sherry is pretty quick to change emotions and move from, from joy to sadness as she recalls incidents from the past. And as painful as it is for me to watch her, her cry, I know how many people really resonate deeply in their soul with the tears of my wife. And so that's a big component of this podcast and something that's going to be missing today because I doubt I will bring myself to tears. But, you know, who knows? We'll see. And I know one thing that people have shared with us a lot recently is how much they've enjoyed listening to the changes in Sherry over the, the years that we've been doing the podcast. It's been described that she's really found her voice recently, that in the initial episodes, we were both, frankly, wandering through the darkness trying to figure out what it was we were talking about, but that as time has gone on, Sherry has really found her voice. So I'm going to apologize for the fact that she's not on this recording, but before you turn it off and go about your day and, and say, gosh, it's not worth it if, it's, if I'm not going to get to hear Sherry, uh, let me assure you, you're going to hear me talk a lot about Sherry, and hopefully I will do her justice and it'll be really positive. I want to talk about the reason that Sherry and I are doing so much better in our relationship. We're in our fifth year of sobriety now, since I, I quit drinking, Sherry hasn't had anything to drink in, in a long time either, but we're in a, our fifth year of my sobriety, and we say it all the time, sobriety fixes nothing, but it is a prerequisite. We are firm believers that abusive alcohol consumption and love just cannot coexist. It is impossible. So sobriety might not be the solution in and of itself because there's a lot of repair work that has to be done, but it is a prerequisite for getting getting you know our hands dirty and getting the repair work done. And one of the things that's happened to us in our long-term sobriety is that we've just grown more naturally comfortable promoting each other's strengths. 
we, you know, the things that I know that Sherry does well, uh, I encourage her to do more of that. And she does the same thing for me. And these are the kinds of things that when we were locked in addiction, my drinking would prevent me from even maybe noticing her strengths. And it, alcoholism is such a selfish period, such a selfish disease that I wasn't able to be the encouragement that I now am able to be for Sherry when it comes to the things that she likes to do and the things that she does well. And, you know, she had so much resentment and anger toward me that it was really hard for her to do any promoting of me back in those days as well. And, you know, one of the strengths that Sherry has that I'm going to mention just right off the top is her frankness and her honesty. She just doesn't have it in her body to be any other way. And that's that's one of the things that we would attribute the success of this podcast to. That's probably the main thing. Even when we're recording about a subject that makes her uncomfortable and she might not be enjoying it, she just, she can't, you know, sugarcoat it. She can't go halfway. She just tells it like it is. And I love that about her. It's one of the main things that I love the most about her. But the other thing that's happened that's really interesting in our long-term sobriety is that we find each other's weaknesses endearing. That That's something that is almost impossible, I feel like, when we're in active addiction. Again, it's such a selfish state, uh, and it, it puts guards up for both the drinker and the loved one of the drinker. And so, you know, any weakness that Sherry spotted in me, you know, she added that to the pile of resentment that she felt for me and the anger that she felt for me as negatives when it comes to make, making the decision of whether to stay or whether whether to go when it comes to thinking about how much or if she loved me. The, so weaknesses were only the, tr- the traditional, only had the tr- tr- traditional, you know, connotation. A weakness is a negative and it added to the other negatives that she felt towards me. As the drinker, boy, weaknesses that I spotted in my wife, those were dangerous because especially when I would drink and drink too much, I would pounce on those weaknesses. It was like blood in the water for a shark. I mean, it's awful, embarrassing to admit, but it's also painfully true. Any weaknesses that I saw in Sherry would be things that I would throw back in her face when I was drinking and, you know, feeling bad about myself and in attack mode. So it was impossible in active alcoholism for us to feel the way we do about each other's weaknesses. Now, again, I used the word endearing. So it's a really cool place to be where we are right now, where we promote each other's strengths and, you know, we laugh and even enjoy in some ways each other's each other's weaknesses. We play off each other. We interact in the way that I believe humans were designed to interact, especially in loving romantic relationships. And it's a way that, you know, um, was just completely unfamiliar to us because I was drinking when we met. So alcohol has always been a big part of our relationship until my permanent sobriety. And so we're learning as we go and figuring out how to interact with each other in a healthy, stable way. And, you know, the endearing qualities of each other's weaknesses and promoting of each other's strengths is a big part of that. Now, one of the things that we've learned about the way we play off of each other is me laughing and being less serious that really relaxes Sherry. And I, I feel like with, with all the couples that we work with, this is a very common 
the thing that we hear about, you know, when I was drinking, but then even more so, even especially in early sobriety when it's all so serious and, oh my God, I've got to never drink again and I've got to find a way to do this and I've got to beat these cravings and nothing is bringing me joy because my neurotransmitters are all jacked up. And it's just, what's the next book going to be that's going to solve the problem? And I got to do more research and listen to more podcasts. And I got to fix me. And it's a 24 hour a day job to work on me. There's not a lot of time for joy and laughter in there. Now, not only is there not time for joy and laughter, but I just didn't feel much. It's such a heavy place to be in early sobriety. And now that I'm over that hump and I'm past that, I laugh more. I naturally laugh more. I'm naturally left serious. But as I've noticed what it does for my wife, how it relaxes her to see me laugh and find more joy in life, I find myself, you know, pushing myself in that direction in a very purposeful way. It's it's not only the natural joy and laughter that comes, but let's face it, you know, we've got a very hectic work schedule. We've got four kids. Um, three of which are teenagers right now. I mean, there's just a lot. There's a lot going on for us, and it's often very serious. All of our our work in addiction prevention and recovery is very serious. So laughter doesn't just come naturally all that often. And so I find myself purposely trying to lighten the mood and trying to have a good time, trying to, you know, tell a joke, but more so than that, just... Just goof around and not take myself or everything that we're dealing with so seriously because I've noticed how much it relaxes her. And so that piece of the relationship where we play off each other, that was, you know, we played off each other when I was drinking too, but it was, I would be mean and then she would react and be mean back. A lot more of that. I would be quiet and she would withdraw as well. You know, I I would be outwardly, you know, not mean to the kids, but withdrawn from the kids, and it would change her her mood and attitude, and the kids could see something was wrong with her too. So we have always played off each other, but now we're doing it in such a more healthy way, and I'm super excited about it, and I'm just, it's something that brings me so much joy. I I get joy from my laughter, not because I'm laughing about something funny, but because I laugh, and then Sherry laughs, and lightens up and enjoys herself and relaxes, however you want to say that. And when she does that, that just lights up my world. So, you know, my laughter is not in and of itself the thing that brings me joy. It's it's my wife's reaction. And again, we're in relationship for a reason. If, if we were supposed to be solo individuals, then these kinds of reactions wouldn't matter. But because we are kind of built to pair off two by two and find soulmates and live our lives together, it's really important that the reactions that we have to each other be positive. And if you're in that tough place, if you're in early sobriety, or if your loved one is still drinking and you're not there, I'm here to tell you not only do we have empathy for that and we understand, but it takes a while to get from point A to point B and sobriety isn't going to fix it, but sobriety is a prerequisite. And we're just hoping and praying for you to to join us in the place where laughter and reactive laughter is such a joyful part of life. Another thing that's really enduring to me about Sherry is she shows such concern for the things that are concerning me, even over-concern sometimes. You might think of this as a codependent trait, and I suppose 
and in some ways it is, you know, she she wants to, whether she wants to fix the things that are problems in my life or not, she definitely has more interest in the things that are problems in my life than I naturally find that I have for her. I mean, I have to remind myself to ask questions, how was your day, and, and like ask follow-up questions, really care, and not just accept the word fine is her answer. How's your day, Sherry? It's fine. Okay, great. What are we going to talk about next? But but to really dig in and say, no, I know you had that meeting that you were worried about or you 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 went to the zoo with the kids. Tell me how that went. Really following up and expressing interest is, I mean, I'm not proud to say, but I think it's a pretty common trait, maybe just among the alcoholics. In this world, maybe among the males in this world, I don't, I don't know how much of it's a gender component, but I have to think, consciously think, to express interest in the things that are concerning Sherry, and she does not. She just naturally wants to know, oh, I know you were meeting with so-and-so, and I know you were kind of stressed about that. How did it go? How did, how did that conversation end up? You know, What's the follow-up? Can I help you with the follow-up? So even at times, I can I feel like she's over-concerned almost in a codependent way. But it is, again, it is so endearing to me. It, it is a way that Sherry shows love for me when she expresses such deep and heartfelt and genuine concern for the stresses in my life. And she does it for all of our kids. I mean, I, I just don't know how she does it. Uh, I, I'm jealous in many ways of her ability to keep so many balls in the air emotionally and keep track of all of us and what's going on with us and and when when I can t- when she's digging deep and asking follow up question after follow up question for something that I'm dealing with I know that that is one of the ways that she loves me and it it just warms my heart doesn't matter how serious or bad the situation is it warms my heart Here's another one here's another thing again related to how Sherry and I play off each other, how she reacts to me and I react to her. Sherry wants me to love her cat. Sherry's got this like 42-pound orange blob of fat and fur cat. His name is Gordon. He's been with us for many years. I rarely call him Gordon. I always have another nickname for him, like Tons of Fun or Tubalicious or something. Um, But this cat's important to Sherry. And only in my sobriety have I really paid attention when I look at her looking at the cat. <laughs> when I look at her smiling and laughing when she's petting the cat. And when I look at how her mood changes when the cat comes around. You know, I, it was always there, but I always thought, oh, whatever, she likes cats, I don't, who cares? But now in, in long-term sobriety, I'm like, whoa, she loves that cat way more than she loves me. This is like serious. I need to pay attention to this. And she looks at the cat in ways she never looks at me that way. She has the same unconditional love for the cat that she has for our kids. And I know that because, you know, it's honestly, it's a pretty good cat. It doesn't really cause any kind of problems. But on the rare occasion that it does, like, I don't know what happened, but it peed on itself a couple of weeks ago. He, he peed on himself and, you know, Sherry just went to work cleaning him up. And I thought, man, if I peed on myself, she would yell and scream at me and I'd be the one doing the cleaning up. So I see that there's a difference in the love that Sherry feels for me and the unconditional love she feels for the cat. But here's the important point. Not only does she love the cat, but she wants me to love her cat too. 
I know she does. I know that my relationship with this, you know, animal is really, really important to her. And so I have tried really hard, really in the last six months, maybe it's been a year now, to show affection for uh, for Gordon the cat. Now, at the beginning, this was a struggle because I didn't feel any affection for Gordon the cat. I couldn't care less about Gordon the cat for a long time. I've been the one that feeds Gordon the cat. And the reason I feed the cat is because I know that I don't want the cat waking me up or waking any of us up in the middle of the night if his bowl is empty. And like I said, he's like, I don't know, 200 pounds. I don't know how much do cats weigh. He's on the heavy end of how much cats weigh and he wants to eat. And so if I don't feed him, he will wake one of us or somebody up to feed him. So I just take that on and I... You know, I want to keep the cat alive, not out of my pure love for the cat, but because I know it will crush my wife if anything ever happens to Gordon. So I am on Team Gordon when it comes to making sure he's healthy and taken care of because I don't want to see anything bad happen to my wife. But so it's more than just keeping him alive. She wants to see me love on him and pet him and He recently went to the vet and had some teeth extracted, which was very traumatic in our household. But the drugs that he was on when he came back made him pretty loopy. And and so uh, I just kind of sat and and I petted the cat for a while. Sounds funny to me even to say it out loud. But I did. I, I showed affection for the cat. And I know for a fact that that did a lot of good things for the the heart and the emotions of my wife. So she wants me to love her cat, and by golly, I'm going to love on her cat. Even though, you know, the really kind of cold and honest, truthful, jackass side of me sees that as a weakness that she feels all this affection for her cat. Um, I'm, I'm finding it endearing, and I'm doing my best to love on her cat. And that's enough talk about the cat, I think. Um if any of you are Jim Gaffigan fans, he often talks a lot about food and somewhere during his stand-up comedy routine where, where he's going on and on about ketchup or something, he'll say, gosh, is this guy going to ever stop talking about ketchup? So I kind of feel that way about the cat. Is this guy ever going to stop talking about this stupid cat? Yes, I'm going to stop talking about the cat now. Sherry gets mad at people who disrespect me. I mean, like really mad. She's got a temper. She's got an angry side. That's one of the things that I loved about her right from when we first met. She was mad at somebody one of the very first times I was ever with her. And I said, oh, you know, if you're mad at that person, just punch me. Punch me right in the stomach. And before I could even get the second syllable of stomach out, she had punched me really hard in the stomach. And um, I was bent over for quite a while. That That was painful. But so she's got a temper. And, and you know... When or if she ever listens to this, Sherry doesn't listen to our podcast episodes. Maybe she'll listen to this one since she isn't on it. I know she doesn't like to hear the sound of her own voice. But she, she will, you know, I'm not speaking out of school here. I'm not saying anything that's going to upset her by saying that she has a temper and she gets mad. But one of the really endearing qualities, again, us playing off each other, is she gets really mad at people who disrespect me. I mean, I, I, to some extent, pride myself in my ability to not react when someone's disrespectful to me. In some respects, I feel like that makes me really wimpy because maybe I should react. Maybe I should get angry when someone's, 
you know, not nice to me. But again, on the one side, I feel like this is how I've been, you know, spent my life training myself to not have negative emotional reactions in those situations. God knows as a drunk, I had way too many negative emotional reactions when I was drinking. And so that's something I want to put in the rearview mirror and keep it there. But so I, I'm pretty even keel when someone disrespects me, but man, does it make Sherry mad and man, does that make her, me feel like she loves me. It's, it's a really, really cool feeling. I mean, there are times where I'm a little worried about what she's going to do or say, how she's going to follow through on her anger when someone disrespects me. And it's, it's way more than when someone disrespects her. If it's, I mean, this is one area where I'm in the same category, I feel like, as the kids in her eyes. If anyone disrespects our kids or me, you know, Sherry's claws come out and she's ready to launch. Is that another cat reference? <laughs> um, but she, she's ready to attack. And if anyone, you know, disrespects her, her, her reaction, she'll still react. But it's, it's a little bit more, more mild, I would say, than when someone hurts the people she loves, myself and the kids. So really makes me feel loved. Uh, even though I'm like trying to hold her back sometimes, it really makes me feel loved when she reacts that way toward people that are mean to me. Here's some ways that we're different, but that we, these are differences that we've learned to appreciate. And, you know, I'll grant you some of this is recovery from addiction. Some of this is just maturity. And we've been together, it feels like, since Moses dropped the tablets. So some of our growth that we've, we've, come about that has come about between the two of us is just because we're getting old and tired and we've beaten each other down. And so, you know, an area where we are opposites, but that I at least, I can't speak for Sherry in this this area, but I, I find it kind of enduring, endearing. She's pretty much constantly running late for things. Um, and I am kind of nauseatingly early for things. It, it really bothers me that the world seems to have lost its compass as it relates to showing respect for people and being on time by showing respect for, for the people around us. And I mean, even when I listen to other podcasts, they often start, Oh, sorry, sorry. I wasn't, you know, here as we agreed to start this podcast on time. Sorry, we're starting a little late. Given the casual nature of podcasts, you get that kind of preamble conversation between the host and the guest. And that makes me cringe even when it's not my podcast and I wasn't the one that was late. Like I am, I'm that kind of crazy on the being early for things side of things. And so it makes it really interesting to be married to someone who's, I mean, she, she's, she's better than average. I'll say that, but she, she does, she is late sometimes. And even when she's not late, she was at some point during the day running late and had to find a way to make up time. And so that is a couple of opposites, and I guess I guess it's true they say opposites attract, but these differences in these characteristics are something that really did cause some problems in the relationship for a long time, and now I think it's cute. I mean, maybe I just think everything about Sherry is cute now, now that we don't fight and argue, and I feel like I've regained her trust, and she truly, authentically loves me again, maybe I just find everything about her cute. But even, even when she's late for something with me or she's late, you know, and um, it's causing causing stress for her and that stress bounces off of me, even when those situations happen, for some reason, it doesn't bother me anymore. And I kind of think it's cute. And I, and I also recognize that she has to put up 
with my obsessive need for being early almost everywhere and almost every time, which is, you know, maybe not equally annoying to being late all the time, but it's it's way up there in the annoying ometer. Here's another one. I used to think that Sherry was too easy on the kids. I you know, she would often say to me, you know, one of our one of our children um is giving her problems. They're not obeying, they're talking back, they're I don't know, they're pushing buttons. And we all know what that feels like. Even I know most of our listeners are probably parents, but even those that are not, you were a kid once too, and you know what pushing buttons is all about. So you know what I'm talking about. And earlier on in our relationship, for for the majority of our relationship, I would list for Sherry the three or four things I would do differently than the way she parents to take care of that. Because, you know, I'm a little sterner, more disciplinarian. I think it goes with this obsessive need to be early. I don't think I need to describe too much to our listeners, um, uh, you know, the parenting style of someone who's got that compulsive need for earliness. Um, I just, I make the kids toe the line. And I, you know, I, I, I still feel good about my parenting style. But for a long time, I would try to convince Sherry to do it my way. If you would just, like, don't give our nine-year-old options. Just tell him, this is what you're going to do, and then make sure he does it. Don't tell him you can do it now or you can do it later, because then he'll inevitably forget to do it altogether, and everyone's going to have heartburn. Just tell him, do it right now, because that's the way I would handle it as the parent. And so for a long time, the vast majority of our time together, I thought Sherry was too easy on the kids, and I thought that her parenting style was, frankly, it was wrong. And I have just in recent years realized what a fool I have been and how wrong I have been and how the way Sherry parents, that's what nurturing looks like. Giving a nine-year-old an option and then hoping and praying he makes the right choice and, and trying to help him back on the right path when he makes the wrong choice, that's hard freaking work. That's work that I have consistently shown that I'm unwilling to do. But it's work that Sherry is consistently willing to do. And even though it causes her grief and heartburn, it nurtures our kids in ways that I am incapable of doing. And so I think that the the kind of adults that we're trying to grow here and the kind of adults that our kids are are turning out to be, our oldest is 19, so we've, we've got some pretty strong evidence of what what kind of results we're going to get from our parenting it's it's doing you know nine tenths of the results um, from our parenting are attributable to Sherry's nurturing attitude toward the kids. I mean, they all know if they come to me, they're going to get a yes or they're going to get a no, and there probably won't be much of a discussion. Whereas they know if they go to Sherry, uh, if they try hard enough, they can probably you know, either get their way or or get some kind of a negotiation going, get some middle ground going. And that's a really important learned trait for a kid to learn how to negotiate situations and try to be persuasive and at the same time listen to the authority figure. So they're just learning a crap ton more from Sherry than they are from me, I, I feel like. And what used to really annoy me about her, her her nurturing approach 
to, to raising kids because she wasn't doing it my way and just getting stuff done and moving on. I now find it remarkably endearing, and I'm so thankful for the mental health of our kids that Sherry parents the way that she does. Here's some, some kind of more tactical keep-the-household-running issues. You know, Sherry loves to do laundry. Well, I shouldn't say that. Sherry does all the laundry. I don't think she hates it. I hate laundry, and I do the dishes. So even at the same time as we react off of each other. If I'm laughing, Sherry's in a better, there's a better chance she's going to be in a good mood. Um, if I'm loving on her cat, Sherry's going to love me for it. All the things that we've talked about. Ooh, he brought up cats again. Um, but there's also, there's also just the, the kind of yin and yang, the, the chore distribution that has to take place. And we, we both have found our, our place in, in that, I mean, like I said, Sherry does the laundry and I do the dishes. Um, when it comes to like deep cleaning of the house, I don't know that that would ever happen ever if I was in charge of that. But occasionally, Sherry will be, you know, sweeping and mopping and dusting and taking down the blinds and cleaning them. And I'm like, ooh, wow, that looks sucky. And I'm glad I'm not doing that. Um, but so she definitely does more than I do when it comes to around the house. But we found a nice, a nice way to fit. And, you know, I probably, I don't probably, I definitely put more hours in uh, to work in the traditional sense, the, you know, do something productive and try to earn money as a result, that kind of work. But I know for a fact that Sherry puts more effort into managing the kids and the household. And so often in relationships, that becomes a competition. Who is doing the most? Well, you just stay home with the kids. You know, while well, I'm at work and, and it's grueling all day. Oh, yeah, well, it's grueling to be home with the kids. And that back and forth is so, so, so unhealthy. And I'm just super thankful that Sherry and I have reached a point where we don't compare notes. We don't say, oh, you know, what did you do today? Let's see how it compares to how much I did today. We just do our thing. And if everything gets done, it gets done. It's like her assets are my assets and her you know, her efforts are my efforts. And so why does it matter who does what as long as it all gets done? And that's a change of attitude that that I'm really proud of. It. It's, you know, that's developed over years, even going back to when I was drinking. We were very much a divide and conquer kind of household because there was just so much that needed to get done. And who cares who did it as long as it gets done? Okay. It wouldn't be an intoxicated podcast episode if I didn't bring up sex at least once. So here we go. Feels a little weird to talk about this without Sherry, but at least I don't have to watch Sherry cringe in the chair across from me because I know she doesn't like to talk about sex. Sherry's body, her her presence, her attitude, her face, everything about her is a turn on for me. I am super attracted to my wife, physically, emotionally you know, spiritually, all of it. And she didn't do anything to destroy my trust for her the way I destroyed her trust for me through my alcohol, alcoholic behavior. So there wasn't any rebuilding of my trust in Sherry. So I think that's one of the reasons it's different. But I also think guys are typically just hornier than girls are. And so when I look at her, I'm not saying like every time I look at her, I want to have sex, but I'm saying there's a physical attraction that's undeniable. Everything about her, I'm attracted to. And 
It's, it's just such a great place to be, a great feeling. And so it doesn't take much for her to turn me on. She just has to exist, basically. And I think there are probably women that'll hear this episode and relate to this with their horny husbands and say, ugh, God, I wish I didn't turn him on just by my existence in the world. But that's how it is for me, and I have a feeling that's how it is for a lot of men. For me to turn Sherry on is totally different. My hair-covered, you know, mid, mid, midlife body doesn't really do it for her. So for, for her to be turned on, it's things like when I take our youngest child to the skate park on a Sunday afternoon and spend some time just watching him skate around. Not doing work, not on the phone, you know, not trying to multitask, just hanging with, with one of my kids. And as much as I enjoy hanging with our kids, doing sports, playing, uh, playing a board game, you know, if I drag one of them to go on a walk with me, which they all hate, uh, bike ride, which they hate less, anything like that, as much as I enjoy the time I'm spending with them, I've come to realize it's even more powerful for Sherry, even though she's not the one spending the time. She's not even on the bike ride. And the bike ride means more to her than it does to me. Because that's, you know, I've known for a long time, not because I'm smart enough to have figured it out, but because it was repeated to me so many times by books I was reading and, I don't know, podcasts I was listening to, that foreplay doesn't start in the bedroom, especially for the female. And I know I'm getting real gender specific and I'm, you know, I'm not a sexist. I believe in equality, but I, I think it's a mistake when we ignore the typical Um, roles that gender plays psychologically and emotionally in our society. So what I'm doing is stereotyping right now, but as they say, where there's smoke, there's fire, where stereotypes come, get, get started for a reason. So when they say that foreplay, especially for the women, starts outside the bedroom, this is what I'm talking about. It is sexy of me to take my kid to the skate park. It is sexy of me to walk by Sherry and touch her on the shoulder without grabbing her butt or grabbing a breast and just, you know, be, being kind without any expectations. It, it is sexy of me if I help one of our kids with their math homework. And it took me a long time to understand that. And so when we talk about sexual attraction, again, understanding the two sides of the street, understanding what does it for me and what does it for her has been revolutionary, nothing short of revolutionary in our relationship, you know, and, and understanding that I can build up all of this, this credit on the attraction side by, by, you know, kicking the soccer ball with one of the kids and helping one of them with their homework or whatever. And then I can easily erase that by, one crude comment to my wife or by doing something crude like, you know, grabbing her butt as I walk by her. Like, you know, it's it's like drilling a hole in the bucket that's supposed to be holding all this built up attraction. Do something stupid like that and the bucket's drained to zero again and you got to start all over. So it's been profound for our, not just our our marriage in general, but for our sex life for me to have learned finally, as uh, obstinate as I am, the importance of non-sexual things as they relate to sexual attraction for my wife. 
And again, I, I don't think that we are unique in this area. In fact, I know we aren't from many of the conversations that we've had with people that we work with in our in our Echoes of Recovery program and just callers or pardon me, listeners and readers that contact us. Um, I'm just I'm sure that that is one of the one of those things we talk about as universalisms. It might not be scientifically significant, the research that we've done. But this is the way sexual attraction works in marriage, alcoholic or not, for a lot of couples. So I just wanted to share that as well. You know, this is going to be a shorter episode because it's just me. And I know some of our listeners will think, God, Matt, I thought it'd be longer if it was just you, the windbag, talking without having Sherry in there at all. And I was afraid of that too, I'll be honest. But it, I'm getting pretty close to the to the end of the notes that I took for this episode. So we are... We are wrapping up a little bit here, but I want to end on this. The, you know, the world beats us down. That's just the way it works. We go out there and things take shots at our self-esteem. Things don't work out. People are rude. You know, the system just doesn't operate as efficiently as we would want it to. And honestly, I blame alcohol for a lot of, a lot of the dysfunction in our society and our culture. But that's a topic for another day. The fact is we all know you get up, you try to put a smile on your face, you go out there, and sometimes things go well, but just as often, maybe more so, things work against you, and the, the world just beats us down. Isn't the point, I mean, just philosophically, just step back. If you're, if you're religious and you believe in God as Sherry and I do, um, then think of it from that standpoint. You know, if you're not and you, you just... You, you find anthropology or biology interesting, then just think of it from these organisms interacting on the planet. Isn't the point of humans and the bond that we feel, not just humans, actually all animals, the bond that we feel, the need that we feel to pair up and be in relationship with one another, isn't that all about building each other up? If so many things in life and in the world are there to tear us down, Shouldn't our marriage be a safe place where we're building each other up? And so if you agree with me on that, then you've got to ask yourself this question. If there is alcohol in your relationship and the alcohol is causing the person drinking it to tear you down, or if you are the person drinking alcohol and you have regrets from the things that you're saying, I mean, it's so basic and fundamental that this flies in the face of what humans are designed to do on earth. I mean, it's fine if you want to go out, if you want to go to work and, and tear down the competition that's selling widgets of a different make, you know, or you want to step on somebody's head on your way up the corporate ladder, that's fine. Go go do you, whatever. But when it comes to the, the romantic relationship with the person that you've chosen to spend the rest of your life with, I think right at the top of the chart of reasons why you got into that relationship, the reasons that humans pair off two by two is to support and build each other up. Now, I'm all for, we got to fill our own buckets. You know, we can't rely on the people around us for as our sources of self-esteem. I get that. I get that. But if you're in a relationship that doesn't build you up, there's something wrong. And... My strong guess, if you're listening to this podcast, is the thing that's wrong is the alcohol. 
And if you can get the alcohol out of the relationship and you can do the work and you can have the patience to get to the point where you find each other's weaknesses endearing and you get to the point where you're playing off of each other, now you're on to something because now you're building each other up so that you're ready to go out into the big bad world and take the body blows that we know are coming. The body blows should never come. And I, I don't mean that physically. I mean it metaphorically. Well, they should never come physically either. But the body blows shouldn't come from the safe zone. I mean, think about it. Think about it from the standpoint of nurturing children. It, everyone understands who is a parent that there's peer pressure and social anxiety and all kinds of things that take place at school and that the house has to be the safe zone. The kid has to feel safe at home. And it tears me up because I know in so many cases the kid doesn't feel safe at home. I hate that. I hate that about our world. But that's so important. Why would we think that that changes when we become adults? Why would we put up with a lack of safety at home? Why would we think that we can function as healthy and normal adults out in the big bad world when home isn't a safe place? So that's the message of all of this. Sherry and I, you know, we made a lot of mistakes um, as we, you know, I drank my way through the first 20 years of our marriage. And so we're far from perfect. But one, one of the things that we've learned is the alcohol, getting the alcohol out of the relationship doesn't fix anything, but it's a prerequisite because it allows all of this other nurturing stuff to happen that allows home to be a safe place. And they're really, I can't think of anything that's more important than the home front being a safe place for the kids, for the romantic relationship, for anyone who sets foot inside our house, that we welcome them and try to try to nurture them as well. And so if that doesn't exist in your life, in your marriage, in your family, then you know that's got to be prioritized. It's got to be prioritized over the needs of the spouse who says, get off my back, I drink like everybody else does, what's the big deal? The big deal is the home isn't a safe place and it's gotta be the place where we build each other up. It just has to be. You know, alcohol in any quantity makes the subtlety of thought that we're going through here on this episode impossible. Me recognizing that Sherry loves her cat and it'll make her love me more if I love her cat too. I couldn't have picked up on that when I was drinking. It was just, again, subtlety is the word. It was too subtle for me to have ever figured out. I couldn't get out of my own way when I was drinking. He mentioned the cat again. I couldn't get out of my way enough when I was drinking to, uh, to notice how important it was for Sherry that I love her cat. Um, my, my laughter and less seriousness wasn't able to relax Sherry when she was on pins and needles because of my drinking. So alcohol in any quantity makes the subtlety of thought that we're talking about here impossible. So I thank you. If you've listened all the way to the end, you know, I hope that you enjoyed some of the stories, some of my talking behind my wife's back. I know I enjoyed doing it. Um, and, but even more so, I, I hope you're getting the message here at the end and I, I thank you for listening all the way through because I, I, I think that's where the little nugget is and I, I, 
It, it's been a profound change in our lives to recognize that we are here. Kind of our main purpose is to build each other up and support each other so that we're ready to face the world. And I hope that you either have that in your relationship or you find that in your relationship. And don't be afraid of the hard work that it takes to get there. Because, you know, Sherry and I, we're not rocket scientists. A lot of what we learned, we learned the hard way. A lot of what we learned, we learned from listening to others. But it's, it's doable. It's attainable for anyone who wants it bad enough. And I hope that we can count you as uh, people that want it bad enough. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.